National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security issues. I promised at the beginning of this year to do a number of shows on the importance of space to American national security interests. Today we hold a second show on the importance of space. We have two guests who are extraordinarily well-regarded as experts on the topic. Dr. Namurata Goswami is an independent scholar on space policy and great power politics. She was recently invited to teach at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University in their Executive Masters in Global Management of Space. Dr. Goswami serves as a consultant for Space Fund Intelligence. She was, su- she was also subject matter expert in international affairs with the Futures Laboratory in Alabama and guest lecturer for India Today class at Emory University. She worked as research fellow at the MP Institute for Defense Studies and Analyses in New Delhi, a visiting fellow at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, Norway, at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, at the Jennings Randolph Senior Fellow. Uh, she was the Jennings Randolph Senior Fellow at the United States Institute of Peace, and she was a Fulbright Senior Fellowship awardee as well. Dr. Goswami was awarded the Minerva Grant by the Office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense to study great power competition in outer space. In April 2019, Dr. Goswami testified before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission on China's space program. Her co-authored book, Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, was published in 2020. Our second guest is Peter Gerritsen. He is a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council and a strategy consultant who focuses on space and defense. He's the co-author of Scramble for the Skies, the great power competition to control the resources of outer space, and he hosts AFPC's Space Strategy Podcast. Prior to joining American Foreign Policy Council, Lieutenant Colonel Garrison spent over a decade as a transformational strategist for the Department of the Air Force, where he first served as a strategy and policy advisor for the Chief of Staff of the Air Force and as the Chief of the Future Technology Branch of Air Force Strategic Planning. As an instructor of Joint Warfare at Air University, he laid critical foundations for the future of American and allied space power, initiating the, Shre- the Schriever Scholars, which is America's premier program to develop space strategists, and the Space Horizons Task Force, which is America's think tank for space, as well as developing the rationale for a U.S. space force. He taught courses in war theory, joint planning, and national security implications of artificial intelligence. Peter Gerritsen is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, and he received his master's degree in human factors in aviation science from Embry-Riddle University, and he's presently pursuing a doctorate in public policy at Auburn University. Dr. Namurata Goswami and Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gerritsen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. It's nice of you to have us. Uh, Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. And and where are both of you this morning? We're on Zoom, so we can have a face-to-face conversation, but where are both of you located? So I'm located in Montgomery, Alabama. And John, I'm also in Montgomery, Alabama, just outside our university. All right. All right. So we have a lot of material that I want to cover with the two of you today. It's uh, having two experts on this topic on, a, on the show at the same time. I want to tap into your, your brain power. If I could, uh, I'd like to ask both of you why you chose to concentrate your studies 
on the strategic and security implications of space. Could you give our listeners a sense of what it was about space that drew you to study both the space and the great power competition aspects of space? Uh, sure, John, let me start. So uh, my background is in international relations and my PhD is in international relations as well. So based on that, for the last 20 years or so, I've been studying uh, grand strategy, great power politics, especially countries in Asia, to include China, uh, India, and inevitably, of course, the presence of the United States. So as uh, I continued to study that, what was interesting was that in the last few years, uh, it became important for me to understand that in that context of great power competition and grand strategy, space plays a very critical role in terms of not just uh, strategic factors, but also technical and military operational factor. So without an understanding of space, both from a theoretical and a policy perspective, it is not very easy for a student or a policymaker looking at great power and grand strategy to understand the deeper impact that it has. And so that was my pathway to including space as a critical factor in understanding great power competition and grand strategy. Okay. And Lieutenant Colonel Garrison? So, John, it actually goes back to 2004 for me. So I was a fairly new major, got sent to the Pentagon to Air Force Future Concepts, my job was to sort of look 50 years out, and so I was studying a bunch of trends, and it was a quadrennial defense review at the time, mm -hmm. and we were asked to examine a bunch of non-traditional threats. So I got very interested in energy security and uh, security of critical resources and uh, played a few war games that uh, sensitized me to the importance of space. And I became convinced as I looked at it that all the major answers to the major challenges on the global agenda, whether it was uh, energy security or sustainable development or uh, a green energy system, were all in space. And I realized sort of the vast potential that space had uh, for the betterment of life on Earth as well as our national security. And so I also became sensitive to, you know, what were the projected uh, rates of GDP growth for different countries and how different the world was going to look as we approached 2050 than it did in 2004 when I started looking at it. And so that led me to think about who are the great powers and who were on track to become the great powers of the future. I think we should highlight the fact that the two of you are the co-authors of the book that I mentioned, Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Uh, were, were there any specific events or trends that the two of you saw that led you uh, to choose to collaborate on writing that book? So I can start a bit on that. So I had just come to, uh, well, I, I should say that I had returned from a, a tour in India where I had met Mamrata at the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis. And I had uh, started working as an instructor at Air University and I had a, uh, my boss at the time, Dr. Paul Springer, let me know that there was a Minerva grant that was looking for sort of competition in the gray zone, was what they were advertising for. And he was the director of research and encouraged me to look at it. But in order to apply for a Minerva grant, you had to have not only a professional military education institution, but you had to have a civilian, uh, um, a civilian collaborator. And so on my end, the trends that were particularly interesting to me uh, was what was happening in the commercial space sector with mm. the, uh, the about-to-happen uh, revolution in reusable space launch. And I'll let 
uh, uh, Namrata talk about what were her motivations. Yes, absolutely. So for Joan, for me, the motivation and the research uh, direction that I took to uh, write the book and also to uh, join Peter in applying for the Minerva grant was that since I studied China and India specifically, what was so interesting to me was that within the Chinese strategic conversation and discourse on space policy and space ambition, uh, many of the Chinese space policymakers and scientists were starting to talk about the concept of space resources mm. and utilization mm. of space. And so as I looked into their speeches, their policy documents, and their different uh, space institutions, two trends became very clear. One was that China was starting to articulate space from more uh, economic and grand strategic perspective. And they were making a very direct link between the utilization of space resources and Chinese national power. Ah. So that was the first trend. And then the second trend for me was also interesting that not just China, but countries like Japan, India, Luxembourg, we're also starting to talk about space from a resource utilization perspective. And so uh, in terms of reviewing the literature for the Minerva grant, what became clear to us was that this was an understudied aspect of great power competition, especially the shift of discourse from space as a technology prestige mission to space becoming a lot about economic perspective. And so that was my primary motivation to undertake this study. So you both mentioned the Minerva Grant. Could you tell us, just so the listeners know, what what is that program, the Minerva Grant program? So it's an Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, program to uh, grant uh, academic researchers a certain amount of uh, money to fund original research. And they have more than one uh, different types of things that you can apply for. And every year they give a call for what are the topics that are of interest for them to uh, develop. And in our case, uh, you know, we submitted a research proposal that involved field work in, in China and India and a budget for that uh, and a, sort of a two-year uh, cycle. And you're expected to produce within your timeline and to uh, provide your research in a forum where there are a bunch of, uh, or, or those years academic researchers get together. And then they just sort of ask that wherever you publish, because it's free and, and open in the academic uh, world, that you just acknowledge that uh, it was uh, sponsored by Minerva. Okay. <clears throat> so I think the title of the book uh, kind of speaks volumes, right? The Scramble for Control Over the Resources of Outer Space. Uh, what are those resources exactly? I, I mean, we should be thinking about more than just, you know, who, who's got satellites in low Earth orbit or even how geostationary orbits uh, exist. It's my understanding that pretty much every country in the world sort of has a little slice of the geostationary orbit uh, for satellite communications out there at, uh, at geostationary orbit. What, what are the resources we should be thinking about when we, when we talk about space? So I'll, I'll start with saying that there are two extremely broad, or maybe three extremely broad categories. Uh, the first is just position. Position is very important, as, as you mentioned, for instance, shells within low Earth orbit and uh, particular locations in geostationary orbit are important today, and there will be other positions that are important as we move farther out. But, the, but when we really think about the future of space resources and what our book is principally about, we're talking about um, material mineral 
uh, resources, such as you would get on the moon or on asteroids. We're talking about energy resources, such as you would collect from the sun, or that you might uh, collect as, uh, as a particular kind of nuclear fuel. And then uh, in the longer term, we're actually talking about real estate resources as well, the ability to use other planetary surfaces or even build uh, vast in-space uh, planned communities that could you know, greatly expand the, the number of people in orbit. And you know, what, what's exciting about this for me isn't just the type of resources, it's the scale that, you know, when you might hear, for instance, people concerned about the environment saying that, you know, there's, uh, you know, we would need so many more earths in order to, you know, fund a sustainable development. Well, really, you know, there's, there's a billion times the material resources just in the inner solar system beyond earth. And there's more than a billion times the energy resource that we need right now, just from the sun. So the possibility to expand our civilization is quite impressive. Yeah, I'll add to that by saying that from a country specific perspective, so that your audience get a sense of what, uh, for example, China, India, the US, Luxembourg are talking about. So if you listen to Chinese uh, space policymakers and scientists, there are two resources that they talk about, which are critical for them. One is water ice on the lunar surface, which is the number one uh, basic resource that they are talking about for reasons that water ice can be used for rocket fuel, but it can also be used for life sustainability on the moon. Mm. And as we know, China's uh, ambition is to establish a lunar permanent presence. The second resource that countries like China, India are talking about is helium-3 on the moon. So as we know from data that NASA has put out, as well as books like Asteroid Mining 101 by John Lewis, Paul Spudis's book uh, on the moon. Uh, so helium-3 is something that exists on the moon. And the, and the basic idea is to be able to extract it so that you can then use it for future technology like nuclear propulsion and fusion. So those are very important resources. And the third resource that uh, the head of state for India, Abdul Kalam, uh, president of India, talked about is space-based solar power. So in his estimation, a concept like space-based solar power that is able to collect uh, sun's energy in space, which is 24 hours, can actually be able to deal with the developed world lifestyle of a 9 billion Earth planet by 2050. Yeah. So those are the yeah. specific resources we are talking about. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Dr. Namrata Goswami and Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gerritsen, and we're discussing the role of space in American national security. Uh, so <clears throat> I guess we should probably talk a little bit about the fact that uh, orbit around Earth has become... Uh, kind of a dangerous thing to navigate with all of the space junk that's up there. Uh, and we've had uh, countries do anti-satellite missile tests that have uh, created huge debris fields whipping around at 17,000 miles an hour in orbit. Uh, could you talk a little bit about sort of the hazards to spacefaring nations as we try and pursue these these grand ideas of moving into space and taking advantage of space? But we, we do have these very real dangers uh, of getting safely out into space and operating in space because of all the debris fields. I could just, both of you could just kind of comment on that briefly. Sure. So the reality is, is that the physics of space are quite 
different and, and initially counterintuitive to what we're used to on Earth. You know, on Earth, when you push something like a ball, it slows down due to friction, but that's not the case in space. And so once you get something up to orbital velocity, it basically stays running around the Earth at that same speed, uh, you know, potentially for thousands of, of years, uh, depending on you know, if it's high enough uh, out of the trace amounts of the, of the atmosphere. And so when, a, when two satellites collide, uh, either by accident or deliberately as part of an anti-satellite uh, you know, missile or co-orbital satellite uh, attack, uh, at a hypersonic velocity, they, they turn into thousands of pieces that are all going hypersonic velocity. And so they remain in orbit and they remain a hazard. Now, space is enormously big. But even something the size, you know, of a grain of sand can be catastrophic to a satellite when it's struck at, at Mach 25, which is the orbital speed. And of course, they can, you could, in space's geometry allows sort of two things at Mach 25 coming head on as well. So, you know, it could be as much as Mach 50. So, you know, it, it having, a, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, a continuous barrage of of bullets in your operating environment, you know, is is not a a positive thing to have. And of course, it's the, the United States Space Force and United States Space Command provide a space situational awareness capability uh, that uh, helps to reduce the possibility of uh, of inadvertent con uh, conjunctions. But it's certainly not helpful that we have uh, nations like China and Russia creating thousands of pieces of, um, you know, deliberate long-lasting debris in the higher orbits that make it difficult to pass through, that make it difficult to put up important things like global internet uh, in those shells. And that's why you see such a push for responsible behavior uh, by this administration and by the Department of Defense. And so Space Force, uh, their orbital prime project, is that the right, uh, is that the right project? The, the goal is to try and clean up all that debris in space? Well, I, would, I wouldn't say that the goal of orbital prime itself is to, uh, you know, their, their ambitions are a little more limited. It's to catalyze the technology that will allow for, you know, ah. the removal of, or at least the most important ones. But the, the removal of, you know, all you know half million million of these small <laughs> yeah. pieces you know is is quite a difficult problem um and one that really deserves the attention uh, of the you know innovation community to go after yeah i would add that the the concern today is that uh, as what peter's mentioning for example the russian asat test at the end of last year created about 1500 pieces of debris the chinese test before that in 2007, created about 3,000 pieces. The Indian test 2019 created about 400 pieces. Now, I'm saying that because the concern today is that there is no international space uh, situational awareness uh, agreement. And secondly, there is no communication possibility. So countries communicate with each other, but then recently China complained that they tried to communicate with the US Space Force about a Starlink satellite, but then the communication didn't get through. Uh, and so those situations continue to uh, arise. The United Nations uh, True Resolution 7536 that was brought about by the United Kingdom is trying to create a space situational awareness map 
but we are not there yet. So this is a very important strategic area that needs some resolution in the next few years. So, Dr. Goswami, I know you've published many articles on China's pursuit of space. Uh, because of your, the two of you, because of your collaboration on space and great power competition, could you give us a sense of China's plans for outer space? I know they have a, a space station they're starting to build and uh, a whole bunch of other things that they want to do, including with the moon and maybe beyond. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll start with that. So what is so important to understand about China's space program is that it does not exist by its own. So for China, space is a part of their comprehensive national power. And President Xi Jinping, especially since 2013, prioritized two very important areas in space. One is the capability of the Chinese military to be able to utilize space for their joint warfare as well as their ability to uh, create a presence in space. And so towards that end, he was the first uh, head of state to actually establish a separate space service in 2015, the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force. So given that context, uh, there are three goals that come out from China's space policy and their grand strategy. One is that they take the ability to have presence in low Earth orbit very seriously today. So their space station is a move towards that. Uh, it, it should be completed by the end of this year, which means that they'll be able to not just have presence, but also learn how to live in space for a longer period. The second goal, which they articulate, is that they want to be able to establish a permanent presence on the lunar surface. And that they hope to accomplish by 2036. Now, why are they wanting to establish a lunar presence? Uh, as I mentioned before, it's not just about showcasing technological capability, but the very serious consideration of being able to understand, extract, and catalog lunar resources. So they very clearly state that in their policy statements, as well as their white paper. And the third goal that they have is that they want to be able to establish a human landing system for Mars as well. Yeah. So those are their long-term goals. But you will see that in their articulation, they view that as a part of their larger grand strategy, because in their estimation, space will become a very critical component of them becoming a great power. So those are the long-term goals. Peter? Yeah, you know, what I'd like to underscore here is that, you know, uh, while the Chinese program serves many uh, diplomatic and prestige components, um, it's fundamentally motivated by economic development and economic power. And so, you know, the Chinese plans to industrialize the moon, to build solar power satellites, to catalyze a a uh, earth moon economic zone that uh, generates $10 trillion annually and to build the internal components of 3D printing, in-space assembly and manufacturing, nuclear power and propulsion. Um, you know, these are the things that are really going to be game changing. It, it's, it's frankly of minor importance if they put an astronaut on the moon or an astronaut on Mars. But if they're truly able to generate, you know, a, a continent's worth of economic uh, output by their industrial things on the moon, that's what changes the game for national power and that's what matters for national security. So you had sort of asked in, in one of the earlier questions about, you know, the, about the book and the importance of space resources, right? 
one of the importance for space resources is that in the same way that the new world was an engine of economic growth that meant that Spain and Portugal were the, the powers of the time, uh, the access, and keep in mind that the new world basically just doubled the land that was available in Europe. But, you know, we're talking here not about a doubling, but a billion times right. the resources. So a nation that can preferentially get access to this resources expands the production possibility frontier on all levels. It essentially expands the land, it expands the, the material resources, it expands the energy. And as a result, you know, it will matter to who is the top dog on the international system and who is the top dog matters to, you know, what sort of uh, freedoms and liberties we have and whether or not republics like the United States remain safe. So, you know, the bottom line is that if the United States wants to protect its freedom and liberty and those of its partners and allies, it necessarily has to pay attention uh, to to playing in this game of, of who has access to and whether or not you can be uh, excluded from uh, resources that are going to be game-changing to to the international power system. So what, so what I think I'm, I'm hearing the two of you say, uh, and, and Dr. Goswami, thank you for bringing up the, uh, the topic of grand strategy. <laughs> well, I, I, we've talked about that issue on, on our show many, many times. I actually had a, a great debate uh, at the end of last year on whether or not the United States should have a grand strategy. But what I'm hearing the two of you talk about is that China does indeed have a grand strategy, a grand strategic plan, not only for what they want to do here on Earth, but for space, space explorations, assets uh, that they want to try and take advantage of in space, economic development in space. They have a grand strategy for that aspect of their development as a nation. Uh, is the United States just really behind on this? Are other countries doing this as well? What other nations are out there that are pursuing space in the same way? I mean, what, what should we know? Anything of concern or are there areas of international cooperation that we should be very excited about uh, when we think about this long-term strategic development of space uh, in, in the way you outlined it earlier, Peter? Well, I certainly think the United States is way behind uh, in at least one aspect. So when you look at sort of the tactical things that are feeding uh, space, you know, we have a very, very strong commercial sector. Um, we have laid groundwork for some very important things. Uh, we at least have an Artemis program that is aimed, you know, at going back to the moon. We're trying very hard via the Artemis Accords uh, to bring in, you know, additional allies and partners into that. Uh, you know, we have at least, you know, started a space force and a space command. Those are very important moves. And of course, this administration, you know, has continued those things from the last administration and put out an in-space uh, servicing assembly and manufacturing strategy. So those are, those are the, the good news story. But the bad news story is that China really has an articulated vision you know, that spans, you know, more than 30 years, but at least for 30 years out, it has clear timelines and goals. And I'm sure NAMI will tell you about uh, how good they are at meeting those goals, but they have articulated these very big picture things about what they, you know, want. They want lunar settlement. They want to build solar power satellites. They want to industrialize the moon. 
they make that fundamental connection. So it, it has this aspirational uh, component and it has this long-term component. In our system, we tend to be pushed towards things that can be delivered in one and perhaps max two administrations, and then we have just annual budgets. And so bureaucrats in particular are averse to you know putting anything that, that that can't be delivered in a couple of years. And so you know the problem with that is that without a national vision and national purpose to sort of galvanize and put this as well as to be sort of the you know, the culling function for things that don't make sense. So for instance, you know, we are spending, you know, we we have an Artemis program, but that Artemis program is going to spend $2 billion per launch on this completely expendable rocket at the same time that a private commercial uh, uh, company, SpaceX, is building an equivalent fully reusable rocket you know, that's projected to be launching, you know, somewhere around, a, you know, $100 million, uh, or sorry, $10, $10 million, you know, per launch. And so, you know, if you don't have the right long-term vision, um, you're going to make poor choices along the way. And, you know, I think the lack of a long-term vision is, you know, what allows NASA to sort of, you know, bill Artemis as sort of a flag, a second flags and footprints mission and to pay insufficient attention to the tasking to develop a public private industrial, you know, partnership and to think about a long term railroad that others can ride other than government astronauts. But let me turn it over to uh, to Namrata, who really watches, you know, the, the Chinese system and how good they are at, at making uh, long term goals and meeting them. Yeah, Dr. Goswami, could you talk about that that idea of grand strategy and the fact that the Chinese are beating America to the punch at every at every turn, every round? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, when I talk about grand strategy, let me just uh, conceptually uh, offer a definition. So, grand strategy is the highest level of strategic uh, statecraft that actually articulates a comprehensive policy and strategy to meet certain goals. So it's not just about economic, it's not just about diplomatic, it's not just about military, but it's actually an articulation of all those facets within a very clear strategic direction. Now, an example is when I listen to, for example, President Xi Jinping's speeches on why China is investing in space or why is it reforming its military? What does it want to become the number one economic power? It is all about ensuring that China is able to influence the international system. So compared to that, a country like Bhutan also has a grand strategy, but its grand strategy is not about dominating or determining the international system, but actually how does it navigate its geographic location between two great powers, India and China. So there's a great difference between great powers in which I locate China and the US uh, and uh, smaller countries. So to, in that particular context, what is so interesting from my research is that one thing that I picked up was that when China articulates particular strategic goals in space uh, and they tend to do it 10 years away, for example, their willingness to invest in a lunar far side landing, which happened in 2019, was articulated for the first time in 2002. And then they established the China Lunar Program in 2007. 
And what is interesting and very strategically important is that they did not deviate from that goal. And they actually met their goal on time. And then their Mars mission, their lunar sample return mission, their launch of a space-based solar power project. I think one of the advantages that authoritarian regimes have, especially China, is that there is no change in administration or governments. And so once they commit to a particular goal, the ability to continue to invest in that without having to get congressional approval, for example, <laughs> is not there. And so that's an advantage. But you see, the important point here is that how does democratic countries like the U.S. or India ensure that space remains democratic? Yeah. I think one way, and I've articulated this in my articles, that one way you can do that is basically to create a very clear strategic goal as to why the U.S., for example, in, in, is investing in an Artemis program, right? What is the end goal? And why is it critically important to establish a democratic system in space that has regulations that come from a democratic basis? And so in that particular context, I think leadership is really required and the articulation of strategic goals are required. And yet, uh, I think that is missing, that kind of vision today, the kind of vision we had in the 1960s, right, when right. Uh, President Kennedy talked about why the U.S. is going to the moon. I think we need that today in the U.S., because otherwise you will have, uh, and that is where other nations come in. So I'll just end with that, that the strategic context of space is so exciting today. It's not just about a few countries during the Cold War that is investing in space. You have 72 countries with space agencies today. You have Australia that has started a space agency. You have New Zealand, you have Indonesia, you have Malaysia. Now, Africa, for example. So now how do you create a partnership uh, capability that brings in this particular actors? You'll have to announce a space ambition and vision that articulates that particular ability and also commit resources to it. One way that China has started to do that is to include space in their Belt and Road Initiative. Oh. They call it Belt and Road Spatial Information Corridor. <laughs> and so within that context, and they announced that in 2018 in their Belt and Road Summit, where they had 29 heads of state that had come to Beijing, that space is now part of the BRI, by which China will invest in the space capacity of other nations that require it. I haven't seen a kind of vision come out from the U.S. today in that particular grand strategic context. And so uh, India has a very advanced space program, but hasn't joined the Artemis Accord. And so one way, and I, and I think this is important for your audience to realize as well, that when you talk about the Artemis Accord to go back to the moon, most of the countries that have signed on are traditional U.S. allies. I think the whole context of the U.S. leadership in space will change if you have countries that have not been historically U.S. allies sign on to the Artemis Accord. That's where uh, a cooperative framework, consultations, years of investment and diplomatic outreach will bear fruit. And I, I'll end there, John. Just to jump in on that, you know, I, I think it's it shows like yours that really offer the opportunity to reach the electorate, right? NAMI talks about leadership, but if the electorate isn't ready, if they're not on board, if they don't understand the stakes and what's on the table and what our competitors are doing, uh, they might dismiss it. They might say, oh, you know, pie in the sky, you know, asteroid mining, you know, nonsense. What's that got to do with me or my children? But it really is essential, you know, for Americans to realize 
you know, our, the, the lifestyle that we enjoy today was the result of lots of hard work to build an industrial economy, uh, some good, you know, fortune after World War II to be the only industrial power standing. You know, but today, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, you know, rising powers and there's a huge cognizance uh, externally about what these resources might mean to the future of international power. And if the electorate isn't uh, aware of and asking its politicians to think about and consider this and to look at it in, the, in what I would say is the critical perspective, right? And it's not, as Nami said, it, it's very different from the first space race. The first space race was fundamentally about who, it, it was diplomatic and political, like who, who was going to be the more vibrant society that attracted the newly independent former colonial states. You know, and so it was a play on the global stage to say, you know, who wants to be on our side because we're the greater technological power. But that's not really what it's about today. Today, it's really about who is going to be the engine for economic prosperity that others will join in on. And so this is why, you know, everything's connected. The Chinese Belt and Road, you know, uh, Space Information Corridor, right? They're trying to lock in people to their standards, to their equivalent of, of GPS, the Baidu system. They're trying to lock them into their 5G and their on-orbit, you know, internet uh, and, and their planned 6G satellites. And so the United States cannot be, well, if the United States intends to remain the protector of the free world, it cannot just stand by and and allow this to happen without having a competitor program because we are playing for the stakes of the rest of the world and we have to be considering what are the you know where are the opportunities to solve things on the global agenda and space offers exactly those opportunities to build a global green energy uh, renewable energy system in space from space resources that can supply the whole world you know, they can supply, you know, the strategic minerals you need for a hydrogen economy or a battery economy that can provide, that offers the opportunity to move polluting industry and computation off earth into a more, an environment more benign for life. And China has been very clear about articulating how its space program supports those goals, how it supports the United Nations development agenda. The United States is just has failed to offer an equivalent vision, and that's a shame because fundamentally we've got the stronger tools and we've got the stronger actual commitment to those things, but the electorate hasn't asked for it and the politicians haven't delivered. So let me, let me see if I can summarize what I've just heard from the two of you because it it is a disturbing uh summary i think uh for for our audience if if they are if they're really listening to what you're saying we we've known for a number of years now that the post world war 2 international security framework uh has been under attack uh it's been kind of percolating below the surface there are countries out there that want to disrupt that entire global security framework russia china others and it really wasn't until i think Russia invaded Ukraine that we saw a flat out open competition between the liberal democracies of the world and the rising autocracies of the world and that competition is is totally in the open now because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what I'm hearing from you is that whether we are ready for it or not 
the race for economic control of space is in front of us. The Chinese have a grand strategic plan for yes, how to take advantage of it. Yes, certainly <laughs> my message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, John. Go ahead, go ahead Dr. Goswami. Yes, so I think that uh, that's a great summary because uh, one of the important uh, lessons from Russia's invasion of Ukraine that's so clear is that even in that particular context, you can see the uh, ability of Russia to use its economic power to create wedges in a consensus building, right? Yeah. So, uh, for example, I listened to the narratives and articles outside of, say, Europe or the U.S., right? So how are countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America looking at this, right? You see that there is actually a lack of consensus and right. abstention in the United Nations, right? Why? Because Russia is able to use its economic power, including its export of gas and oil, to limit the impact of sanctions as well, right? Which, which means that has direct implications for the conflict. Now, I'll end by saying that China is watching all this. So just recently, I saw two articles and read them in the Chinese military uh, website. And both the articles warned about the strategic consequences of, for example, the U.S. private space sector contributing to the Ukrainian war effort, right? right. And yep. drawing lessons from that for their own strategic uh, area by which they didn't mention that by which obviously it means the South China Sea and Taiwan, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, and, and you can see that. You can see that in their consensus building, in the narratives they're putting out. And that actually is read by people. Uh, it, might, it might not be carried over in the Western press, but it is very much discussed and, and uh, looked at uh, outside of that particular realm, right? And so, and, and so yeah, and in a sense, uh, both China and Russia in a joint statement that they signed in February of uh, this year when Putin visited China just before the opening of the Winter Olympics. It's actually, I, should, I would urge your audience to read it because it's a 6,000-word essay <laughs> and a joint statement, but it's so critical to realize that both of them argued that they are uncomfortable with a U.S.-led world order. And their basic uh, strategic vision is to create an alternative world order and they give you reasons for that but it's very clear that they have committed to it and uh, and the problem is that there is a denial that this is what's going to happen that china would bat uh, or support russia but they stated it in an official position and i think that's where uh, the u.s strategic community really needs to look at documentation beyond uh, just uh, western press so, you know, just to amplify, you know, I, I wholly agree with your summary that ready or not, uh, the world is going to see a scramble for space resources and the results of that scramble is going to determine many things about the international order. You know, and I think, you know, as you point out, Ukraine has many lessons. You know, when you look at it, it, it hasn't escalated into an all-out, uh, you know, battle between the United States and Russia. It, you know, it hasn't uh, turned into a nuclear war. But what we have seen on both sides is a tremendous amount of economic coercion and attempt to get others on board. And we have seen, you know, uh, China come on very strongly on behalf of Russia. One of the things we didn't discuss is the fact that China, uh, or sorry, that Russia before Ukraine chose not to be part of the uh, Artemis program uh, and is now, you know, has threatened several times to leave the International Space Station. Uh, 
Right. And, you know, what they what they chose to do instead was to join China in a Chinese-Russian, uh, what they call the International Lunar Research Station. And, you know, so when I think about the future of outer space, you know, I think about it less in terms of, uh, and particularly military power, I think about it less in terms of some, you know, giant Star Wars battle. I think about it more in terms of this type of uh, economic coercion at the periphery, whether it's something like Ukraine, you know, an ally, which for instance might be, you know, a future ally who has a, a mining base on the moon and they're now being coerced by someone or something that looks uh, like the South China Sea. I think, you know, one of NAMI's early insights was that the future of space doesn't really look like nuclear, doesn't really look like cyber. What it really is likely to look like is the South China Sea. Hmm. And so, you know, we have to be ready for, you know, the, if you look at how, how important military presence and power was to the history of the European powers on the North American continent, right? It isn't that they fought giant world wars here, right? It's that for these tiny outposts at the far reaches of logistics, for things that they hoped would become economically productive and eventually were, right? Eventually they became, North America uh, had a larger GDP, you know, than the whole of Europe. But initially it was an, a very tenuous hold. And so for instance, whether or not France was going to have, you know, a foothold on the East Coast was decided by like less than 200 soldiers. Right. <laughs> but a very tiny thing, right? So when I think about, you know, the importance of something like the Space Force, I think about it in terms of making sure that when we put down those initial tiny outposts that start to produce the things that are going to make a difference, right? That we haven't put ourselves in a position where somebody can just come along like the British did with the Dutch colony of New York and say, ah, it's undefended, it's ours. Um, you know, try to come back and, and stop this fait accompli. So, you know, one aspect of this is to have a national strategy that directly incentivizes and articulates a desire for space industrialization and development. The second part is to posture the mission uh, of, the, of the Space Force and U.S. Space Command to understand that it is part of protecting and enabling that commerce as it goes forward. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio. This is National Security This Week. Our guests today are Dr. Namarada Goswami and Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gerritsen, and we're discussing the role of space in American national security. Uh, so for the two of you, sh should, the should the United States be concerned about vulnerabilities of our space assets in a time of crisis? Uh, let's move. We have just about uh, 13 minutes left on our show. Uh, we're not in direct conflict with Russia right now over Ukraine, but that certainly could happen. Uh, the same potential exists, say, with uh, China invading Taiwan. Uh, are either of you concerned about American strategic readiness when it comes to space assets in time of hostilities? Uh, I mean, Dr. Goswami, you talked earlier a little bit about the importance of space uh, in China's thinking about uh, application for, for military operations, amongst many other things. We know for certain that the United States and our and our close allies depend very heavily on space uh, for our military operations. What should we be thinking about right now as we're as we're venturing into space and space is becoming so much more important for beyond just military application or communications, but 
access to, to resources and, and, and whatnot, economic development for space. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, I can see uh, two vulnerabilities that needs to be thought through. Uh, one is that in 2005, in an article for the China Academy of Military Sciences, uh, two of China's uh, you know, military officers pointed out, and this was a lesson they drew from the first Gulf War, 1991, when they saw for the first time and were shocked that uh, the US military was able to move forces out of line of sight, for example, uh, strategically communicate, uh, you know, direct their missiles uh, with space support. And so in that context, one of the biggest lessons that they drew was that while China might be conventionally inferior, for example, to the United States, one area where they can create an asymmetric advantage was to threaten US uh, space assets. Mm. Because their conclusion was that US joint warfare and power comes from that. Yeah. And so in that particular context, they started uh, advancing their military space capability. And some of the programs, and you mentioned this, John, uh, in your uh, remarks, uh, is that to invest in an anti-satellite capability uh, and to showcase it in 2007 to create that vulnerability as a signaling. And the second uh, critical dimension is that they're also developing blinding and disabling capabilities as we speak, right? And so that means, uh, let's take a scenario where the U.S. is committed to come to the uh, defense of Taiwan. Let's mm -hmm. take a hypothetical scenario. And so what happens if China is able to engage in an activity uh, in space that creates communication problems. And this is not just conventional communication. It could be a strategic satellite that is important for nuclear command control communication. That creates an enormous amount of vulnerability. Yes. Now, having said that, I would, and I'll turn it over to Peter, uh, uh, it is true that there has been games and exercises anticipating such moves, and my work is completely open source. So based on open source data, there is still concern, uh, including from the US uh, Space Force leadership that points out that both China and Russia are advancing rendezvous and proximity operation that can come very close to a US satellite. They have showcased that capability. They both re uh, realize that space is one of the disadvantages that could be brought into a strategic operational mapping. And so I think those uh, two vulnerabilities are at the top uh, even today. Peter? So I think the answer to your question is, you know, should the United States be concerned about the vulnerability of our space assets in times of crisis? The answer is absolutely. You know, as Naomi mentioned, uh, both China and Russia are pursuing a diversity of counter space capabilities specifically targeted against the United States. Now, part of that is their desire to deter us from coming to the aid of our allies. Uh, by raising the costs, by saying, hey, listen, maybe uh, maybe this isn't worth losing your billion-dollar uh, NRO <laughs> spy satellite. You know, maybe this isn't worth, uh, you know, you having to wring your hands over whether or not you'll have control of your nuclear forces or won't be able to see uh, missiles coming. But part of it clearly is also, you know, a clear ability to negate our warfighting advantages, to remove our ability to communicate with our troops over, over uh, long distances, to negate our ability to make our precision weapons work, uh, to negate our ability to see uh, and protect ourselves from an from a offensive missile strike. 
and uh, as well as to provide economic coercion similar to a blockade you know in the destruction of our commercial satellite uh, communications systems uh, or to uh, undermine the timing system of our GPS to shut down our power grid or to negate transportation, you know, or all, any number of things that, you know, we're all dependent on, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, autonomous driving cars or, you know, the timing signals of our ATMs. So, you know, they realize that, that we are vulnerable here. And this puts us in a difficult position, you know, to, to, to quote the great philosopher Bart Simpson, <laughs> uh, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know, if you fail to uh, develop any kind of offensive capability, you incentivize the bad guys to just take advantage of you and, and threaten. If you develop offensive capabilities, they feel threatened and will respond and accelerate their programs. But fundamentally, you know, I fall on the damned if you do category that the United States is more likely to be in a secure position, in a position of strength, and we're, we're more likely to do okay in an arms race if we take it seriously rather than to be excessively restrained. So while there are, there are basically two ways to improve the situation, one is to make your satellites uh, less vulnerable to attack. Uh, one of the ways is by creating what's called uh, uh, to replace a few big satellites with many, many small satellites called pro proliferation. Um, so I would say that the, the Space Force uh, through the Space Development Agency is walking down that road. Uh, they, are, they are attempting to, you know, multiply the ways in which they are resilient. Um, but I really think that there is a need for the United States to also be able to uh, be able to threaten, you know, counter retaliation, punishment. And, I, and unlike others, I think it's incredibly important that we're able to make that counter in the domain in kind, because I think that it's it's very easy to understand, oh, you you hurt my satellite, I hurt your satellite. It's much more ambiguous if they hurt our satellite and we take some response on the ground. You know, that might be much more escalatory. And so, you know, what you want to have is the ability to signal clearly on an escalation ladder. Um, you know, I'm fine, you know, with nuclear type thinking of a no first use pledge, you know, uh, you know, those types of things, I think, can be responsible. But I think that the United States can't put itself in a position where we allow our opponents to threaten us and we do nothing to counter threaten. The, the, I think it's 1967, the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, is that right? I'm getting a, a, a yes nod from both of you. Is that treaty essentially defunct at this point? Uh, Dr. Goswami, I'll let you uh, tackle that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sure. No, I don't think it's defunct. Uh, the not, so just quickly for your audience, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which was basically brought about by the U.S. and the arts, erstwhile USSR, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the main uh, inspiration uh, for the movie was to ensure, uh, for the uh, treaty was to ensure that uh, they cannot place weapons of mass destruction in space. So nuclear weapons, for example. Uh, and so uh, the treaty is a treaty of its time. Uh, but what is uh, critical about the treaty is that its articles are ambiguous enough that they are still 
uh, able to offer us at least a framework. So for example, uh, that you cannot have sovereign claims in space, but you can utilize a particular area. It does not stop utilization. It talks about, uh, you know, uh, how do you uh, come to a dispute resolution mechanism? And for that, you have several other treaties as well, right? I think where the Outer Space Treaty uh, needs an additional protocol is that it does, did not anticipate a world where you would have a scramble, if I may, right. for space resources. <laughs> so it did not, in the 60s, this was not an, uh, a, con a concept that was viable, but today it's becoming viable. So we do need an ad additional protocol. And I think one of the critical flaws of the Outer Space Treaty is that it does not uh, basically prohibit the placement of conventional weapons in space, right? So it, has, it says nothing about anti-satellite weapons as well. And so I think in that context, uh, you do need something else in terms of how do you deal with a future where you have territorial claims, uh, who, who will be the uh, basic the security provider, uh, how do you uh, educate disputes over uh, claims on, say, the South Pole of the Moon? I think those questions remain unresolved today. And yeah. so I would end by saying that the Outer Space Treaty remains valid. It's one of the treaties that has been signed by 110 countries and ratified. And yet uh, there needs to be stronger mechanism to deal with the future that is coming. Peter? Yeah, I, I don't see any hunger on the part of any states that have you know visibly talked about their wanting to move away from the Outer Space Treaty. You know, obviously, as Nami says, the, the treaty was of a different time. Uh, there are different interpretations. There really isn't any strong uh, resolution mechanism uh, like in, for instance, the law of the sea. But, you know, it, it suffers from all the same problem of all international law, which is that there is no overarching authority that can enforce it. Right. So it's essentially just a, a reputational thing. So China, for instance, can be you know, a signature to the law of the sea can engage in arbitration and still say, yeah, we don't accept that decision. We're right. going to do what we want in the South China Sea. <laughs> yeah. What do they do? Um, you know, also Russia, you know, can uh, can be on the na on the National Security Council, you know, supposedly to stop uh, the sorts of things that uh, an invasion of Ukraine would be and they're, you know, free to, to do as they want, you know, absent the collective enforcement. So while the Outer Space Treaty, you know, doesn't look to me as if, you know, it it's uh, on its deathbed, neither does it offer any real security uh, in this coming scramble um, or even utility and clarity. I mean, what I really think we need is something like a international civil aviation uh, organization for space that's less focused on security and is more specifically focused on uh, promoting commerce and standards of commerce. That's a good, that's great insight. We'll, we'll have to sort of end it there. Where can our listeners snap up a copy of your book, Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources so, of Outer Space? John, I see that you're on mute, but I will answer your question anyway. Um, the readers can snap up a copy of uh, Scramble for the Skies on Amazon, or they can go directly to Lexington Press, where uh, they're offering a uh, discount code that NAMI may have available. Um, but it's newly out in paperback at uh, at a at a uh, at a price that is much more affordable for many folks. <laughs> and you just Google "scramble for the skies" and it will come right up. So we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Dr. Namrata Goswami and Lieutenant Colonel Pierre Garrison, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, John. It it was a great discussion. 
So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning.